All right, we'll go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. That is where we've been. That's where we'll be for a little while. Hebrews. Last week we were looking through uh, Hebrews chapter 6, just prior to 6, there toward the end of chapter 5. There is a section there. And how I dealt with, with pressing on and don't, do not become dull of hearing. But we, we need to mature. We need to mature as believers, not to stay spiritual babes as we go through life. It is one thing to be a baby and it's great to be a baby, but to be a 50, 60, 70 year old baby is awkward. But there's a lot of spiritual Christians who are acting as if they are spiritual babes or not progressing. The author is saying here and says uh, there in uh, the end of chapter five, around 11 through 13 through 14 there, he's saying that, that you should be teaching others by now. You have this information. You've been saved long enough, a believer long enough that you should now be passing it on to others. But instead, you're getting refed constantly the spiritual milk. You haven't pressed on. You're not even feeding on whole food yet on, on the more meatier things of God's word. So he's challenging them here. And it's a good challenge for us as well to press on, to mature, to grow. Do not be a stagnant believer. Do not become dull of hearing. One of the best ways to not become dull of hearing is to constantly be feeding on God's word. And the more of it you're feeding on, whether it's in church or reading it on your own, the more you develop a palate a desire, a love, a craving for it. All right. So we looked at that in six. We also uh, looked at the impossibility of losing our salvation, that it's completely impossible. We looked at who is the guarantor of our salvation there through um, 13 down to around verse 20 of chapter six, that um, God has made the promise. He has swore by himself that salvation is for all who believe, who have faith as Abraham did. And that's who how we know we are saved if our faith is in Jesus Christ and we trust in him on him alone for our salvation. So it is God's promise. He swore by himself. It is also based on the fact that our promise is the son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And in him, we have all of our hope for salvation. Also, in the fact that he is our high priest. And we look also down at verse 19 and we see a great ending to this chapter. It says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the hope, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So an anchor to our soul that brings our ship to rest. It is a beautiful thing to rest in the assurance of our salvation, the preservation of our salvation, that we are not going to lose it if we have been saved by this God, this God has made a promise. He has swore by himself. It is his son that has provided our salvation for us. He is also our high priest. He has represented us. He has been the mediator for us between God and between us. He has gone into behind the curtains of the holy place, the ultimate holy place in heaven as a forerunner, meaning that he's ran ahead of us, but we are soon to follow that we will be there. That is our anchor, and that's what we rest in. And just how beautiful this resting is, that we can go on in this life, we can grow spiritually, we can continue to mature, but never worry about our salvation being lost. Now, of course, we've talked about this as we've gone through Hebrews. There are people, and there were Israelites, even going through the desert, who were with them, but were not really a believer. Even amongst church uh Churches in the area, churches around the world, uh, church members, etc. There are people 
who say they are believers but are not true believers. And we're not going to call a non-believer a believer. But these are, these are for true believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So there is a difference. You cannot lose your salvation, but there are people who uh, would claim to be a Christian who have no object of their faith. Their faith is not in Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross. So let's move on to chapter 7. The last verse there in chapter 6, we've come across this name one other time as we began our study on the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek. It is a very interesting name and we're about to break it open. I introduced it to you a few weeks back as we were going through Hebrews, but now this chapter is pretty much fully dedicated to Melchizedek. So we're going to look at this character. He is only mentioned two times in all of the Old Testament, but yet God has chosen to speak through the author of Hebrews to write a whole lot about him. So if God has chosen to inspire this author to write this much about him, then indeed we need to know more about him. Now, a very interesting character, only mentioned twice in all the Bible, but odds are uh, most believers have not ever heard his name before. He's not one of the more famous Old Testament passages uh, or scriptures. You know, you don't hear Samson or Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Jonah and the big fish and Melchizedek. All right. You just don't hear about it growing up. It's just not very taught very well, not taught very often. It's not real flashy. Needs a little bit deeper study. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. All right. So first off, uh, we're going to go and read the two places his name is found in the Old Testament because those are what he draws on for this entire chapter. So if you don't mind, hold your place in Hebrews chapter 7 and turn over to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, 11 through 20. The book of Genesis. All right, so we're going to go back to the Genesis and see where his name is mentioned and see why it is so important and see why his name is mentioned over here in the book of Hebrews. Again, his name's only mentioned twice, but it is highly significant when it is. All right, so let's look at this. Genesis chapter 14, verse 11 through 20. I'll try just to read this and not make too many comments on it. We're going to draw from it later as, uh, as basically Hebrews chapter 7 is a commentary on this passage. But starting at verse 11, uh, so, they ate, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram. Abram, is his name later changes to Abraham, same, same individual. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Cheder Lamar and his kings and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Verse 18, here it is. And Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so key components here. Let me just summarize the story quickly. It, it's, a, it's an amazing war victory, uh, a story as well that, that's really interesting how this is happening. But Abram, Abraham, uh, his cousin, his, his, his nephew Lot was taken away. These, the enemy, the bad kings came in, took him, his family, their possessions away. So Abraham comes in with his guys. They go in and retake reclaim and take all these people's wealth back as well. But on the way back through uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And it says there in verse 18, he was priest of God most high. And we're going to look at that a lot tonight because we're going to be drawing from that as far as where does Christ get his priesthood from? Christ was not connected to the Levites. The Levites were genetically priests. This tribe was called to be priest. However, Melchizedek comes before the Aaronic priesthood, before the Levites were ever chosen as priests. So he comes before all of that. He also is the one here who blesses Abram, Abraham. This is Abraham is the one that God makes the covenant with. He is extremely important in the, in the history of the Jewish nation, extremely important to us as well. But him being priest and Abraham uh, coming to him there, Abraham gives him a tithe, gives him 10% of everything, showing that Melchizedek is even superior to Abraham. Would that be a big deal in the eyes of the Hebrews and the eyes of the Jews? Absolutely. So we're going to look at that. All right, let's look at the next passage, Psalm 110, 1 through 4. Just two places that his name is mentioned, but and again, Hebrews chapter 7 is going to be a commentary on both of these. So we're going to look at them, then we'll go back through them as the author of Hebrews presents them. And we'll see the significance of them. And again, this is a deep, uh, deep topic, a deep subject. Hebrews is a deeper book as far as it does take a little bit more uh, learning, a little more, more time to get through because he draws heavily from the Old Testament. And he's drawing from the Old Testament because these, these are the scriptures that the Jews trusted and believed. And he's drawing from them to show that, yes, Christ has fulfilled them all. And he is the greater. He is the only way of our salvation. All right, so Psalm 110, 1 through 4, we have a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, the Savior that is to come, that God says is coming. And oftentimes, God would speak through his prophets to give them a detail about this Messiah that is coming. All right, so that was prophecy. God would speak through a man, that man would then speak, and that would be a prophecy. A messianic prophecy is one prophecy that has to do with this coming Messiah. And here we have one of those as a messianic prophecy. We'll start at verse one. The Lord says to my Lord here, he is acknowledging that there is this son of God and there is God. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse two, Psalm 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of... Everybody say it with me. Yeah, 
Hey, good job, good job. Melchizedek. All right. Here it is again. So his name is mentioned once in Psalm 110. If you want to make a note in the in your in your Bible in the Hebrews there, if you don't have a study Bible, I encourage you to. Anytime you're looking back through your Bible to look at these two passages so you're able to pull this forward as he was trying to do here. So we have the Genesis passage, we have the Psalm passage, and now let's see what he's going to say about these two passages. Hebrews chapter 7. Let's get to our chapter today. And I will divide these chapters up, a couple of them in the the next few weeks. This chapter is a little bit long, but it it flows well together. It's all about him, so I really couldn't find a dividing place for it. Uh, So I'll try to move pretty quickly through the text tonight. But Hebrews chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Where did he draw that from? Genesis, right? We just saw it over there. Met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So what is going to happen here is we're going to see uh, the author of Hebrews show Melchizedek as a type of Christ. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that point forward to the coming Christ. But there are also, we've covered this quite often, there are types, there are certain people, certain characters that, that have attributes that, that God uses to point forward to the coming Messiah who will also have these attributes. And this is one of them. We look at other things, one of the, most, one of the easiest, most recognizable uh, uh, types is the lamb. We see the lamb, the Passover lamb, and how his blood was shed and put on the door. And when the wrath of God came through Egypt, it did not go in that door if the lamb had already been slain, if the lamb had already taken the punishment, right? And then John the Baptist, we see later when Jesus comes to be baptized, he says, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So we see this type with the Passover lamb, but then we see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Make sense? All right. So here we have this going on as well with this character, with this individual, Melchizedek. And typology is someone or something that has similarities to the coming Savior. So think about that as we draw from these passages, because this is what Hebrews chapter 7 is. It is a study. Ology, anytime you put that at the end, means study of. Hebrews chapter 7 is a study of this type of Christ. Someone who has attributes, not that he he is Jesus, not that at all, like David often was referred to as a type of Christ, but but Melchizedek is one as well. So let's look at him. Uh, Melchizedek is a very real person, but he is also a type of Christ. He possesses attributes, characteristics that are supposed to be pointing forward to the one that is to come. His name right here, it says in this passage we just read, literally means king of righteousness. That's a very big clue that this is definitely going to be a type. So his name literally means king of righteousness. And look what he reigns over. He reigns over Salem here at the end of verse 2. And Salem, that that simply means peace. So here we have the king of righteousness. He reigns over his land is the land of peace. Already we begin to see this typology fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ is the only true righteous one, that he is indeed the ultimate, the supreme king of righteousness. We also know that he reigns supreme over peace. He dies on the cross, takes the wrath of God on himself and delivers to us what? He delivers us the peace of God. 
when Jesus returns from the dead, he, he goes into the room where the disciples were, apparently through the door or in the room. We don't know how he got into the room exactly. The first thing he says is peace because he has just absorbed, taken the wrath of God for their sin. So he enters the room now as the king of righteousness and presents peace. Okay, so we begin to see this already that his title, uh, the, the country in which he rules, he is the king of righteousness. He is over Salem, the land of peace. Romans chapter five, one. I'll just read this one for us today. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that one more time. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified, remember justified is more than just the removal of sin, but when Christ is your Savior and your faith is in Him, your belief is in Him, you've trusted in Him as your Savior, it's not just that your sins are forgiven, but you're actually given the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. So we don't just get to heaven sinless, we get to heaven with His track record. That's, that's what glorification is. That is the good news. So in 5.1, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified or made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have Melchizedek, who is a type similar to Jesus, who is the one who is the king of righteousness, the one who justifies us, the one who brings peace. Justification on the board behind me simply means to be made righteous, more than the removal of sin, but the addition of righteousness, all right? The other word here, peace. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, the land of peace. Uh, but ultimately, peace is a right relationship with God, no longer in a position or a relationship of wrath. Oftentimes, people will say as they're delivering the gospel or trying to, to talk to someone about Christ, they'll say, do you have a relationship with God? Have you heard that before? All right, but most of us all have heard something like that. And uh, I always want to scream, yes, every single human being has a relationship with God. That might sound kind of universal at first, but uh, there is no human on this earth who does not have a relationship with God. You're either in a relationship with him as an object of his wrath or you're in a relationship with him as an object of his righteousness, his peace, his mercy, his grace. But there is no one who's in a neutral position in their relationship with God. So everyone has a relationship with God, right? So we need to be at peace with him. But naturally, we are enemies of God. We're at wrath. We don't we, we're going to get his wrath. We don't desire him. We don't love him. We sin. We pursue what we want to pursue. We don't give him glory in a natural position until we have been supernaturally regenerated, supernaturally saved, and our belief is in Jesus, we're not at peace with God. So, so we'll look at that. He is our justification, and Jesus is our peace. All right? Let's move on to verse 3. He is without father, still speaking of this individual. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Melchizedek is extremely unique. There is no one else in the recorded Bible quite like him. This is, he is not saying here that he is a supernatural birth and is eternal, but what he is saying here is showing a type, something similar to the one that is to come as far as God ordains later on, he chooses Aaron. Uh, he chooses Moses. He chooses Aaron. He chooses the Levites to be priests. And they are priests by genetics. They are priests because they are born 
from their great-grandfather who is named Levi. They are the Levites. And in order for you to be a priest, you had to be of this tribe. You had your great-great-grandfather had to be Levi. This is the way God ordained the priesthood and he chose these priests. But here we have a priest who comes who is not in this genetic line, who is who is not from the tribe of Levi, who has not Levi's his great great grandfather. In fact, we have Abraham there and Abraham uh, is Levi's great great grandfather. And we have Melchizedek before Abraham and before the Levites. And this is going to be really interesting because what he's saying is here is we have Christ who is ordained, who is called by God to be a priest. And we also have Melchizedek who is who is called ordained to be a priest who is not connected to this Levitical line. Look at verse four. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Uh, this is big. Again, John eight thirty nine. I believe I have this one for you today. It says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of what Abraham did. I put this up here just to say that this was a common thing for the, for the Jews to say to Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would, they would listen to him, but they could care less because genetically they were of Abraham. And they would say, Abraham is our father. We have no need for you. We have no need of what you're teaching. And they thought salvation was through their lineage and their lineage alone. So the author of Hebrews, writing to a heavily Jewish crowd here, is dealing with people who would answer Jesus just like this at this time. He is saying, yes, Abraham is great. Yes, Abraham is where is the one that God made the covenant of salvation through. We, we know that to be true, but there's this one. There is Melchizedek who Abraham comes to and gives him a tenth of all the spoils, showing that Melchizedek is even superior to Abraham. Look at verse five through ten. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, now follow with us on this. Up above the screen here, I have the family genes, all right? We have Abraham, who be at Isaac, Isaac be at Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel and the Levites. So what the author is saying here is he who is inferior uh, is blessed by the superior. And when Abraham meets up with Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and Abraham gives him a tenth showing that Melchizedek is superior and even the entire Levitical priesthood. All right. If you trace this all the way back uh, where the Levites come from, where do they come from? They come from Abraham. So the point of this is that he is saying that even your great patriarch, Abraham, who was blessed by Melchizedek, who, who he gives 10 percent of everything to as well. Uh, also represents those who would come after him, including the Levites. 
showing that this priesthood is, is even inferior to the one of Melchizedek, this one who mysteriously appears, all right? So uh, all those who came through Abraham were represented here by this patriarch, Abraham, their progenitor, their grandfather. Abraham represented the priestly order of the Levites since they would come from him. This shows that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater. The title of this, this uh, series that we've looked at and are looking at for several more weeks is simply that, that Christ is greater. And his whole point here is, is that he is even greater than these Levitical priests. Abraham is a great man. The author knows that. We know that as well. But here God reminds them that as great as he was, he and all of his offspring, he represented and paid a tithe to the priest here, showing that the priest represented God, showing that this rarely mentioned individual is actually greater in position than even Abraham. Now, this would definitely get their attention. Someone is, is being called out as greater than even Abraham. So let's look at this. Verse 11, he makes a comparison and more detailed of this typology, the studying of this type, this person who is similar to the coming Christ, the Messiah. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. All right, pause right there just a moment. Now, remember, even though Jesus had fulfilled the law, uh, the priests just kept on working in the temple. So the, the, you have to remember when this is written. And it's written before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in around 70 A.D. And it's written, written before that. And he's writing to these Hebrews, to these Jewish people. And he's, he's laying all these things out here. And he's saying that Jesus is greater. And it's one thing for us to look at this now and acknowledge that Jesus is greater. But you have to remember who he's writing to. These people could go across the street and they could see the temple still in action. They, and 30, uh, 35 years later, after Christ has already died, risen from the dead, the, the curtain was torn in two. Everything is done. Jesus said it is finished, right? Everything has been fully accomplished. But, but yet, it's still going on. So, so who do they trust in? It, it, it is definitely by faith that they are saved. But in their eyes, they still see these things operating. They still see lambs being sacrificed. But Jesus has already fulfilled that, right? They still see priests who are still operating in the temple right there in Jerusalem. And the whole system kept on going, even though it had been fully finished, even though the curtain had been ripped in half, even though Jesus was the ultimate lamb. He is the ultimate priest. It's all finished. He has gone all the way into the Holy of Holies before God himself. It sits with God. He is the anchor of our soul. He is our priest. Yet they denied all of that. They didn't want to believe it. And, and, and the Jewish people in general just kept on going with what was right in front of their face. They see these things happening and they just kept on going until finally it was destroyed in 70 AD. So do they, a question I have for you is, do they still need someone who is descended from Aaron and the Levites to represent them? This is what they were dealing with right then on the spot. All right. Did they 
Uh, do they? Did they need someone from the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, to still represent them before God? And the author here is screaming, no, you do not. You don't need that one anymore because it is completely finished. It is done. That whole system, the law, was put in place by God. The whole thing was to point to this coming one who would fulfill the law perfectly. Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness, took it on the cross, represented us, paid the price, took all the wrath on the cross for himself, rose from the dead, paid the price, and is our high priest, our mediator. That's why the curtain rips. He represents God. He represents man. He is God and man. And the curtain rips that divides us. Now we go before God boldly, right? So that's what he's saying here. You don't need that anymore. Even though you still see it, even though a lot of people you know are still over there in the temple, they're still bringing sacrifices, they're still pretending that that is the way, God has fulfilled all of that. You no longer need that. It is done. This was extremely important for them to begin to realize because depending on when this book was written, odds are later in the, in the 60s there of A.D., the temple would be destroyed in 70 A.D. And if they didn't get this information then, it was going to be extremely depressing, Right? Because they were going to lose, and for many Jews, they lost their method of salvation that they were believing in because the temple was now destroyed. And there had to be blood. There had to be, there had to be temple sacrifices. There had to be priests. And now the whole system was gone. Where is it even now? They still don't have it. They've lost it. So if Christ is not the true priest, then they, they are without hope. There is no hope for them. So that's what he's saying here is Christ is the ultimate high priest. He is not a Levite. He comes from a higher order, ordained directly by God. That's why we have the passage over in Psalm as well. All right, let's go on to verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who is that going to be? It's going to be Jesus. Verse 16, who, was, who has become a high priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For, in the, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We'll pause right there. Uh, the law, the priests, the sacrifices made nothing better, ultimately and supremely. In and of themselves. Again, it was all to point to the coming one. They were commanded by God, but no one is eternally saved through animal sacrifice. Uh, these animal sacrifices were, again, to represent the filthiness of sin, the severity of sin, that a life had to be paid for the sin. And who is ultimately going to pay for that is the very life. Uh, the blood of Jesus Christ himself. A better and clear hope has now come in the person who supremely fulfilled the law, our new high priest, Jesus Christ. So if we go back to verse 17 there, we see where he's drawing from, right? The only other passage in the Old Testament where this name is mentioned, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why is this so significant? Because this is what we ultimately needed. We need a forever high priest. We don't need a different high priest every 10, 15, 20 years. And, and another one is put in place and another one is put in place because they keep dying. Uh, we, we're mortal. And even the priests and the high priests and the Levites, they were all mortal and they would continue to die. There could not be a permanent priest. But now we have one who is eternal, who is forever the high priest. 
So he's saying you don't have to go across the street. You don't have to look to the temple anymore. You don't have to go over there because this priest, even though he died, don't forget, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is our supreme high priest. He has replaced all of them. And he has been ordained and called out by God himself. And he's pulling from that Psalm 110 passage. Uh, Verse 20. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This is a big deal. Levites were priests because they were born from their great, 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 great grandfather Levi. Jesus is the ultimate, the supreme high priest and has been sworn by God himself, the very creator of all things. The very one who's put given this law, who has given us all things, says that Christ is the eternal high priest. So he's removing fear again. uh, So much about the book of Hebrews is the assurance of our salvation that we can rest that Jesus is our anchor of our soul. He is the high priest. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34. We're going to look at this in the coming weeks, not necessarily tonight, but the Old Testament does let us know that we do have the old covenant, uh, but we also have a new covenant that is coming and that Jesus is this one who is the guarantor of this covenant covenant jeremiah 31 if you just want to hold, uh, make a note of that verse 31 through 34 simply says that there will be this time a new covenant where there will be forgiveness of sin and god will remember it no more and that he is bringing a new covenant that he is going to make with someone who does he make that covenant with he makes that covenant with jesus christ and we are in that covenant when we believe in him who is the guarantor look at verse 22 It is Jesus. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. The one that saves us guarantees our salvation. He guarantees this new covenant as well. So Jesus is the one who has made this covenant with God for us. He is the one who guarantees it. He's the one who mediates the entire deal. In a covenant, you have two parties that are represented. Here you have God and you have his people. And within a covenant, you have promises and you have a condition that has to be kept Uh, this covenant that he is introducing here is much better for us why because he jesus is the one who not only guarantees the entire thing but he he makes sure that we uphold our end when god made a covenant with moses and the israelites uh, this covenant was made and if the israelites obeyed then the covenant was kept and they would receive blessings. They would, they would win victories. They would receive land, etc. But, but if they disobeyed God, then they would receive wrath and they would, would receive the lack of blessing. And even though Moses was a, a mediator between the people and between God, even though his brother Aaron was a mediator between the people and between God, they could not guarantee that the Israelites would obey perfectly. All right. So, so now we have the guarantor of our salvation is Jesus. He not only is our mediator, but get this, he represents us perfectly. He never sinned. So that he represents those who believe in him perfectly. So this new covenant is not based on our our performance, but it's based on Jesus Christ. He represents us perfectly, brings that before God, and this is the new covenant. 
that we are his righteousness. Again, it's just a beautiful statement.